well, I missed you. And uh, I knew I was back in the right place, or you know, I was supposed to be, because I, I remembered how to drive to church, and that was good. And uh, I knew the road, and we were going, and, and then I knew I was in the right place when I looked on ahead, and in the middle of the road was wildlife. I was like, oh, man, like, there's something I can run over. That means I'm in the right place. And then I knew I was in the right place when we came up to the wildlife and noticed that it, it wasn't a bird and it wasn't a raccoon, it was a hog. <laughs> and I knew that when you're in a place where your roadkill is something that would look delicious, you're in the right place. So it's good to be back, and I, I know that Tim did great, and I just want to publicly thank him. I have to his face, but I, I, I just know that, that the Lord used him, and I, I'm glad to be back, and, and, and I want to pray the Lord would use me as well this morning, that he would put us back into his word. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you for just the opportunity we have to come before you. We don't deserve anything that you would give us except for your wrath, uh, but you took that off of us and put it on to Jesus, and you have also given us your word, and we need your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us to understand and to take heart what you have said. And so as we go back to the book of Revelation, Lord, I pray that you would uh, clear my mind and my heart and open my mouth to say only what you would have me to say. Open our hearts, Lord, to receive the word, the gospel that you have for us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We go back to the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in your pew. But if you need a Bible to take home with you, we do have extra Bibles. There should be some on the back table. If there's not one there, come see me. We want everybody to have a Bible. You can write your name on it, take it home. I know Christmas is over, but Merry Christmas. It's yours to keep. Uh, But we're in Revelation chapter 2, going through a book that starts by saying, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And while there might be lots of symbols and lots of things going on, and you might get confused... Always go back to this. You know what the book is about because it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's his intent to tell us all about Jesus, who he was, is, and is to come. He's always the same, but what he's also doing throughout history. And so we learn about Jesus. It's about him. And he he gave this revelation to his servant, John, who now is writing this letter that will be taken and delivered to seven churches that were in what is modern-day Turkey. And so we're working through those letters to these churches. Now, we might see that they're written to certain churches that are names uh, that are named Ephesus. And today we have Pergamum. We might say, well, I'm not Pergamum, so I don't need you to really pay attention. But one of the things that he is always said in these letters is that who, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So if you have ears, that means you're to be paying attention to what God is saying by writing these letters through John delivered to these churches because... He wants to speak something to you and to me today as well. And so let's go to the letter at Pergamum and see what he's saying to this city. Now, this city was one that had uh, lots of problems in that not only was it wealthy, which was a problem for it because they were arrogant in that, but also in their arrogance, they also worshipped all kinds of other gods. They loved Egyptian gods. They would worship things like Zeus. In fact, they had a huge, enormous altar to Zeus that measured over 100 by 100 feet. That's a huge altar. And so they glorified Zeus and the other, uh, not only Greek and Roman and Egyptian gods, but they also had the imperial cult there. That is, they worshipped the king. They believed the king was basically a god, and they lifted him up. They stamped him on all their coins, and they worshipped him in any way they could. And so they were given over to lots of idolatry. And so the city had a problem, but there was a nucleus of a church there 
that had been faithful to Jesus, and Jesus is now having these words sent to them. So we pick up the letter to Pergamum in verse 12 of chapter 2. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember, Jesus states at the beginning of all these letters, this isn't just from Joe, uh, Joe Schmo. This isn't just from Billy Bob down the road. This is from Jesus. And he says, these are my words. You can know they're true. And he says, I'm the one with a two-edged sword. Now, throughout the scriptures, it's known that the two-edged sword was a sword of judgment. But it's not one where he comes in and just slashes through, not knowing what he's judging. But it's right, and it's true, and it's perfect. And Jesus is saying, I can see you. I can see everything you do, and I can come and judge you rightly. I know exactly what's going on in your church and in your heart. So listen to what I'm about to tell you, because I see everything. Remember, these are the words of the one who has the double-edged sword. He goes on and says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and, and you did not deny my, uh, my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, we don't know exactly what was meant when Jesus was saying where Satan dwells. That's, that's, that's where he's at. Um, some people think that it was just because of all the, the, the cults there, that because of Zeus or maybe because of the imperial cult. But there was, in fact, a stronghold of Satan in that place. And it was coming against the church who said, we believe, we trust in Jesus Christ. We don't just believe in a king for our salvation. We don't want to believe in other gods that aren't gods at all for our salvation. We believe in Jesus Christ. And it's easy to say, but much harder to actually believe and do when everybody around you is turning you into the police. And when the leader of your church is taken and given over, not just to persecution, but to death. Church tradition says that this Antipas, this guy who died, was likely the bishop, the leader of the church at Pergamum. And so the leader of the church been scooped up and he was died. And church tradition says that it wasn't just that they shot him dead, maybe with an arrow or something or slashed off. They took him and they put him into a bronze bull, the inside, into the middle of this hollowed out bronze bull. They shut it and locked him shut and lit a fire underneath it. That was how they executed him. He died in the midst of a bronze bull. And in the midst of that bronze bull, as people would wail and be tortured, the way it was constructed would make the bull sound as if it was bellowing. And there Antipas died. And you would watch that as a believer saying, I believe the same thing as Antipas who was put into the middle of the bull, and I have a choice. I'm either going to continue on in the way that he went, or I'll give up and I'll go follow something else. And Jesus says, you know what, I see. And even when Antipas went and died that way, you kept strong. You didn't deny Jesus. You kept going. And so he gives a good word there. He says, you stayed faithful. But then he says this in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Now, he's calling upon a story that happens way back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt and they were traveling through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Here they come as a huge nation across the desert. And the other nations are watching them come knowing that God had delivered them out of Egypt, had brought them through the Red Sea, and now they're knocking off other nations. 
Well, there was a king named Balak who's watching this going, "Uh uh-oh, here's the strong and powerful nation who has the blessing of God upon them, and they're coming my way. And so Balak goes and hires, tries to hire this kind of a pagan prophet named Balaam. And he says, would you come and talk to God and get God to change his mind and to actually curse Israel? And so he tries all that he can to pay off this prophet Balaam. Well, Balaam goes four times before God, and God gives words to Balaam to deliver back to the king that says, you know what? I'm God, and I don't go back on my promises. I won't curse my people. I'm with my people, and they're about to take the promised land. So four times that word comes back to King Balak, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm paying you. I want to pay you to give me a good message. You keep bringing back these bad messages. And so Balaam, this bad prophet, went back to Balak and he said, you know what? You're never going to stump God. God's too good. His mind doesn't change. You can't get him, but you can get the people. And so Balaam encouraged Balak to trick the people of Israel because he knew their hearts were corrupt. He knew that they would falter and he got them to get involved in marrying the women where they would have sexual immorality with them and to getting them to be involved in idolatry and to sacrifice to other idols. And so he couldn't trap God, but he can trap other people. And Jesus is saying to the church, you know, you've done good, you've stood up for Jesus, but there's some among you who have sold out. You can't trick God, but some of you have been tricked. And you said, yeah, I can be part of God's people, but I can also mess around with the things of this world. I can can trust all the promises of God, but right now I want to go be sexually immoral with the culture. I want to go and do things at Zeus's altar. I want to eat the food they're eating from their temple. I want to have sexual relations with whoever I have, and, and God will just forgive me. And what he says is, summon your church have decided that it's okay to mix those things up into their relationship with God. They're doing just what Balaam did. You can't get to God, but let's get to the people. The word that's, I think, best used here is the word compromise. Jesus says, there are some among you who have compromised. The word compromise is really made up of two words. A promise. You've decided that a promise with God isn't the only promise you're going to make. You've also gone to the world and made another promise. That's like going to your wife and say, hey, I promised that day I married you that I would be faithful to you, but I've also gone to all these other women and made promises to them. I've made compromises. You know what? That doesn't work for my wife. Amen? And it doesn't work for God. It does not work for Jesus, for his people to say, I promise that I love you. I promise I'll live for you. I promise that I've asked you for forgiveness of my sins, but I'm going to go dilly-dally in the world right now. It feels good. They're offering me some pretty good deals. I saw a sale. How could I resist it? All those after Christmas sales, those are tough. Think about where you might be compromised. Satan's not going to get to Jesus. He's going to get to you. He's going to get to you. Where in your heart might you be compromised? You've said, you know what? This in the world looks pretty good. And you might say, well, I don't worship anything in the world. But let me ask you, what in the world have you given 
the same amount of merit or more merit to than Jesus. And how can you know that? Think about where your thoughts are all the time. Think about where your feet take you all the time. Think about where you travel on the internet. Think about where your money is spent. Now what are you giving worth? What are you giving worth-ship? You've been compromised. You've decided that there's other things that you will make promises to other than just Jesus. And that even in the world, it'll tempt you to say, those things will save you from sadness. Those things will save you from grief. That's compromise. Where might you have been compromised? Antipas, the guy who died in the midst of the bull. Church tradition also says that they came to Antipas and they said, you know what, Antipas? The world is against you. And I love Antipas's reply. You know what he said? He said, then I am against the world. If the world is not with Jesus, then I don't want the world. I will not be compromised in my faith. I will stay with Jesus. Just Jesus. And so we have our cars and we have the presents that we got under the tree and we got our savings account. And you want to know the truth? None of those things are evil. None of those things are evil. You cannot blame Amazon.com for compromising. You cannot blame Belks. You cannot blame Krispy Kreme or the place that sells a chicken biscuit. You cannot blame those things for making you compromise. It's on you. It's on you. If you're the people of God and you're going through this wilderness and you've looked away from him and said, but those things might make me just as happy as Jesus can. You're making promises with the world. You're compromised. And so Jesus looks at the church of Pergamon and says, some of you are compromised. Some of you are doing just what Balak taught the Israelites to do, and you are being sexually immoral with the world. That's used in the scripture not only in a very physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. You are worshiping, you have adulterated yourself to something other than God. Are you compromised? So that's one thing Jesus sees. And then he sees another thing. He says, and also some of you, verse 15, also have uh, uh, some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So some of our knee-jerk reaction to compromising with the world where we say, hey, I'll just do a lot of the things the world wants and kind of syncretize that in my life. Sometimes we knee-jerk the other way and say, well, I'm not going to do any of that, so I'll go and do this thing. I'll make all this list of rules, the do's and the don'ts, that I will keep my life, and that will keep me clean. But there was a group called the Nicolaitans, and they got super hyper-involved in saying, we're going to follow law. We're going to follow rules, and that will keep us moral clean. And, and if we stay morally clean according to these rules, that will make God accept us more. And that is the opposite end of the spectrum from compromise. You know what that is? Slavery. Slavery. When you live according to rules, this and that and do's and don'ts, that's not what Jesus did for you. In the book of Galatians, it says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, make yourself an imitator of Jesus. He hasn't called you just to follow a list of rules. He's called you to follow him in everything. The new law is this. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the Holy Spirit living in you that every day you joyously get to say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? And so where there might be compromise and you knee-jerk, you might end up on the whole other side of slavery, just like the Pharisees did. 
and just like some in Pergamum were doing. And God doesn't want you in compromise, and he doesn't want you in slavery. He wants you in him. He wants you in his freedom. He wants you in his life. He wants to walk with you daily. He wants you to know peace. He wants you to know what real fulfillment is. He wants you to play for the eternal end game, not today's pleasures and not today's rules. And Jesus says, you know, I see some of you and you've compromised. And I see some of you and you are living a law-stricken, bound-up life. And that's the one our world lives like. They're either doing compromise and all the worldly pleasures, or they make New Year's resolutions and give themselves a lift to rule. Any of you make resolutions? I don't much either. You know why? I don't keep them. I can't even live by my own rules, let alone the whole law and Ten Commandments. I can't do it, so why not give myself to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness and help and love every step of every day. I just want to live in you. Help me not to compromise to the right. Help me not to be living slavery to the left. Just let me walk every day with you. Let me be faithful like Antipas. Let me be faithful like John. Let me be faithful like Jesus was. Jesus says, I see some of you have gone one way or the other. It's not the way he says. And if you found yourself in one of those two situations, I've either been super compromised or I'm, 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 I'm in slavery, what should we do? Verse 16 tells us, therefore, repent. But repentance is, is turning away from either of those sins or any sin and just going to Jesus to say, I'm sorry. I'll trust you with everything. Show me what to do. Just walk with Jesus. Turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. If you don't repent, if you don't say, I'm sorry for my sin, and you continue in your sin, you will be struck down. And all of those Israelites in that generation, save Joshua and Caleb, the scripture says they were destroyed in the wilderness. Why? Because they were either given over to compromise or slavery. They did not follow God. They did not truly believe. If you don't truly believe, it says here he will come to you with the sword of his mouth. He will come with that judgment sword that was talked about in verse 12. And in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says, hey, the word of God is a double-edged sword. It cuts deep into you. And it's able to divide. It knows exactly what it's doing to show your thoughts and attitudes to divide soul from spirit and joint and marrow. It gets in there and shows just where your heart is wicked. So don't think you can pull the cover over God's eyes. He will come in and he will justly judge you. And if you're not with him, if you do not repent, he will destroy you. He will. But I love in these letters to the churches, he's not bent on destruction. He wants to save. He wants to deliver people. And so he ends up with this. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, and always in Scripture, us conquering means we're conquering through the blood of Jesus. We're just submitting and saying, I'm victorious in the name of Jesus. To he who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, I know when I want something good, I tell Santa and he delivers it on Christmas morning. I know what Legos are, right? I know what a new necklace is. What's this thing like if I conquer, if I'm in Jesus, if I've repented, then he's going to give me hidden manna? What in the world is that? 
Well, ultimately, the manna represents Jesus. That he will actually give you himself. He is your inheritance. And if he is life and if he is joy and he is peace, then you have all those things. He's given you the best of the best. He's given you himself. There's actually Jewish teaching that talks about hidden manna. Back in the Old Testament, they'd get manna every day, this bread that God would give to them on the floor of the desert when they didn't have grocery stores to buy things. So every day they would wake up and there would be a provision of food. Well, some of that was scooped up into a jar, and it was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It was the, basically the, the throne of God that they took with them all over, and they would put into the most holy place in the tabernacle. And there in that box was this jar of manna. Well, the Ark of the Covenant ended up getting stolen. And that's why they have Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's what they're talking about. They can't find it. Nobody has found this Ark ever since about 586 B.C. when people came in and plundered it. They can't find it. Well, there's Jewish tradition that says that either Jeremiah or an angel or somebody took the pot of manna that was inside that Ark and they hid it somewhere and that when Christ returns, it'll be revealed and those with Christ will get to enjoy that manna as a testimony that he has come through at the end. Now, I don't know if that's you. So I'm just going to say about the manna, Jesus. I think he's the manna. Stay with him. It's all going to work out. And he will give you himself. Feed on Jesus. He'll give you some. Also, it talks about this white stone that a new name is for those who conquer. He will on a white stone have a new name for you and it'll be given to you. Two things. In Scripture, new names are given to those who God is giving a promise to. In the Old Testament, you see that all the time. You're no longer Abram. You are now Abraham. I will make you a father of many. And so he says, if you conquer, he's going to give you a new name of promise. And it says that it will be written on a white stone, which is signifying this. Back in that day, when the judge would hand down his decision... And you stood there as the defendant and the judgment came down, whether it was guilty or non-guilty. When that judgment came down, it would come down either on a black stone or a white stone. When the judgment came down and there was black stone, you were guilty. You were going to pay the price. But when it came down on a white stone, you were innocent. You were free. So he's going to give you a new name of promise on an innocent stone. I don't know about you, but that sounds good. It sounds good to stand before the almighty God who with his double-edged sword could crush and destroy me because of all that I have done. Can't blame anybody else. For all my sin, he says, just repent. Give me your sin. And then you'll have conquered And he'll see you not as an enemy. He'll see you as his faithful bride. And he'll give you himself. He'll give you that new manna. And he will give you a white, innocent indicating stone with your name of promise on it so that you can live with him for eternity. That is good. You know why? That sweater you got from Belks, it's not going to last forever. That new rifle you got, Not going to last forever. The jewelry, the money. 
Are you worshiping those things? Give them up. The imperial cult had these coins in the midst of it. It had the, the picture of the emperor on there. That's what we've got. We might put in God we trust, but on there we've got presidents. And I heard a football player say this week, he says, I don't, I don't work for my football team. I, don't work for, I work for Benjamin and I work for Franklin. He works for money. That's his God. Are you compromised? Are you in slavery? I tell you, those aren't worth it. Nothing is worth it but Jesus. And if this morning in your heart, the Lord has indicated any part of you that you would say, man, I'm compromised. There's sin in my life. Repent and just say, Lord, I'm sorry. Let him clean that up. And then every step of the rest of your life, you say, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's freeing. There might come times that are tough. Times when you don't have a Benjamin or a Franklin or even a Lincoln that's on a piece of copper. There might come days when people persecute you. There might be days where you have to give up watching the Panthers because the Lord is telling you to go pray at South Johnson High School. The Lord might ask you to do some things that are difficult, but you will never regret it because to the one who conquers, he will give himself and he will give you freedom. So Father, this morning we come and we're thankful that as we have ears and have heard the message that you gave to Pergamum, that you also come to each one of us individually and show us where maybe we might be compromised and where we might be in slavery. Lord, I pray this morning that you would call us out of those places and call us to freedom. That that would be represented by our repentance, our, our confession of sin and a, a request for forgiveness and help all along the way. I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that you are calling many to this obedience. And so, Lord, at this time, I pray that you would work in our hearts. We pray that we would lift Jesus high and look to him solely, that we would worship him solely, that we would follow him solely. Thank you, Lord, for all that you are doing. We pray that we will continue to give you praise and thanks as you deserve in Jesus' name. Amen.